Mother in me asks, what if? What if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America is not dead, but a country that is waiting to be born? What if the story of America is one long labor? What if all of our grandfathers and grandmothers are standing behind now, those who survived occupation and genocide, slavery and Jim Crow, detentions and political assault? What if they are whispering in our ears, you are brave? What if this is our nation's greatest transition? Welcome to the Sense of Soul podcast. We are your hosts, Shannon and Mandy. Grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. Today, we have two amazing local women with us. They're not strangers to pain or suffering, but they are survivors and they have strong voices. And today it is our intention to create a space and a platform for them to be heard and for Mandy and I to learn and to listen and to have these conversations we feel is very important. So I'd like to welcome Megan Derman and Sherry Lawson. We thank you so very much for being with us and taking this time. Hey guys, I'm very excited to be actually doing some work today on the movement. And thank you guys so much. I know you guys have a good podcast going. Oh, I'm extremely grateful that the four of us are here today. And I hope that other people will be inspired to have these uncomfortable, hard conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And we have this little infographic I found here, which is a lot of what people are getting their resources from, right? Because no one's a expert in this field, no matter what they write or what they do. I have this little infographic that says five things that are an allyship. And I was hoping that we could kind of go through these points and just talk about how we understand it and what we think we really should be doing. I wanted to ask, how are you guys feeling about this? I would say today is excitement. I'm in a place of being incredibly humbled. I spent a lot of time in the last couple of days educating myself, listening to a lot of podcasts, and trying to just kind of open my eyes on things that I'm not educated on. So yeah. That's where I'm at today. How about you, Shanna? Yeah, so I have been going through an ancestral journey, a healing of some sort, and that has been going on for the past like three and a half years, and it had kind of died down a little bit, and the recent events have actually triggered that again. Most of my ancestry is revolved around race, and a lot of the stories are untold. A lot of it is covered up. And I feel like it's part of my purpose to educate and to share the things that I've learned. I come from the French Creoles of Louisiana, and they are known as the forgotten people. And I feel like they are a very important part of American history. I'm very passionate about this. And being from the forgotten people, I mean, I'm here to tell you that this stops with me stops with my future lineages. They will have that education and knowledge to share with the future. And yeah, but otherwise I am, I'm excited to really listen and learn today. How about you, Sherry? You know, I'll be honest, I was gonna turn Megan down at first. Like I haven't studied race relations, you know, from a sociological perspective or even psychological. I mean, I'm a 46-year-old Black woman raised in the South. I teach at CU Denver, but I teach in the business school. I teach management and leadership, and my undergrad was in English. So I was really thinking about it. I was like, well, I'm not an expert, you know, to speak about this. So that's, those were my thoughts. And Megan, it's, it's really good to see you and connect with you. And I just want to say, I've ramped up my social media a little bit during all of this, and more so than I really thought I would. I was really trying to kind of get away from it. And I actually don't do a lot of scrolling through my timeline to see people's posts. Part of that is just, for me, mentally and emotionally, it's, it's, it's healthier. But for some reason, Megan's posts pop up. And I was really moved by a lot of your posts and just your passion. I thought, you know what, I want to be involved. Because I feel like a connection. And I feel like I'm supposed to be around right now. So I did accept. I don't know how much I have to really lend. But I wrote down some notes. And I've got a couple of thoughts. And so, yeah, I feel, I feel good. Um, and to what you were saying, I'm 21% British Irish. 
I did 23 and Me like years ago and I'm an avid traveler. I've been to over 25 countries and I noticed that whenever I would go to different countries, certain countries would really speak to me or have mm -hmm. like they would spiritually resonate with me. I went to London for the first time last year and I wanted to see how it felt. I've been to China. I'm 74% Sub-Saharan African, West African. A large part of that is Angolan, Nigerian, Senegal, a lot of the West yeah. African, which is what you would expect for, you know, a, mm -hmm. a Black American. But outside of the British Irish, the rest of me is Asian. And I've been to China. And I remember going there and feeling very at home and mm -hmm. very at peace. And it was, it was not what I expected. And I've also been to Africa. I have, I've been to Senegal, Kenya, oh, yeah. and Congo. Kenya was the first place in, in, on the continent that I touched down. Can't even describe the emotion that I felt. I spent the majority of that trip in um, DRC, in Kinshasa, in Congo. And it was a beautiful experience. The majority of the language there is French. Like I connected so spiritually and had like a lot of things said to me, gifts given to me. I was the first Black American that many of them had ever encountered wow. or seen. So there was like all these questions. I was welcomed, you know, there was one woman that just hugged me and embraced me and just said, welcome home, daughter. And it was, it was, you know, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know, it's, it's a very, it was a very beautiful experience. It's just so interesting, the construct of race, especially in our culture, because there's so much emphasis on how things look. And I think that that not only applies to race, it applies to our culture as Americans. And it's part of what is being dismantled, right? Because we're very much a big show kind of culture. And then if you start digging underneath that, there's either not a lot of substance or very icky. And it's some stuff that, that we have to deal with. Everything that we're dealing with on the planet right now, all the energy and the shifting, and that's definitely happening. I think we all feel it. But what we're dealing with in the United States is a, it, it's a long time coming. And there's no way forward without this unveiling, right? Like without dealing with what's actually there. And I, I compared it to um, having a disease in your body that you, you know you got symptoms, but you mask them, right? You take ibuprofen to get rid of your headache. You, you take these meds, you do all these other things, but it doesn't get rid of what is actually causing that. And I think that's where we have been in this country for hundreds of years. We've cosmetically, you know, looked like we're in a good place we look really healthy. We looked really healthy to the rest of the world. And it took all that's going on right now. And it's not just COVID, but uh, a lot of things that are, are in, in the rest of the world is like, wow, you know, like as someone who's traveled, people really, you know, they, they always pretty much highly regarded the U.S. Even if they didn't like us, you know, they were still impressed with our country. And now they're looking at us like, okay. It's embarrassing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. So how do you beautiful girls know each other? I had a six-year-old cousin who was murdered in the Aurora Theater shooting. And her mom is now paralyzed and trying to move forward in this world. Through tragedy, sometimes there is, well, a lot of times there is groups that come together to mourn and try to make a change and be a support for one another. So I actually met Sherry through the Rebels Project which is something I was connected with through my mother who uh, started the 720 Memorial Project for the theater tragedy. So I just remember Sherry being so loving and caring and a mother type figure to me because that world was obviously so new and so heartbroken. And she really helped me to find a place in community. And so I just remember her, you know, reaching out to me and caring about me. And as someone who had also had trauma, even, even worse because she was there, it just really helped to heal my soul. So that's how I know Sherry. And Sherry, she said that you've had similar experience. I uh, was in the Washington Navy Yard shooting that happened in 2013 in Washington, D.C. And I was working, I was a private contractor working on the military base, September 16th of, two, of 2013. Another contractor came in on a Monday morning and murdered 12 of my coworkers while I was running with people who were in the building at that time running for our lives. It was super traumatic and it completely derailed my life and changed the direction. I had purchased a home in DC. I was an elected official. I was a doctoral student. I was an adjunct professor at the University of District of Columbia. I was doing way too much. <laughs> so I was doing a lot, but that was my life. And that's what I thought I was gonna be doing. And I never planned to leave 
that happened and I was diagnosed with like severe PTSD, uh, depression and anxiety about three months after and found the Rebels Project, which at the time was about 250 people on a closed Facebook group that were mainly Columbine and Aurora theater shooting survivors. I'd flown through Colorado one time on the way to California. Like I knew where it was on a map, but didn't really know a lot about it. Had never planned to really come here. And when I found the Rebels Project, I asked if I could come out. It was a few months after, it was in the summertime and they were having an event, the Aurora Theater Survivors Columbine. And actually there were some teens from Sandy Hook community out of Connecticut that were here doing a service project. And so they all decided to get together. And I saw this and I wasn't getting any really much support in DC or um, on the East Coast for what I had been through. Everybody's attitude there was really kind of pushed through it. You're, we're strong, we're okay, we're not gonna talk about it. And that wasn't working for me and I was really suffering. And so I made the decision to come out here and attend that event. And through that, I became very close to a lot of the founders of the Rebels Project who were Columbine alum. And a lot of the Aurora, um, the Aurora theater community was so strong and supportive for me and just got really close to all of them and decided to move to Colorado. I moved here four years ago. There was a lot that happened in between that, but that's, that's how I know Megan, that's how we met. And I, I never knew that she thought of me that way. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting to hear, but thank you, Megan. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's reciprocal. Thank you. Um, yeah. And you know, when you're going through trauma like that, it's, it's funny because you actually remember that event. And when I say trauma, it's kind of like a PTSD as well, just from being a part of the family. So those events were hard for me and I sometimes don't remember much, but now I remember what it was for. And yes, I remember the people who touched me and made me feel loved. So mm -hmm. thank you. It's crazy. Every time I would hear one on the news, it would always bring me back to when I was 16 years old. I can kind of relate with you guys. I worked at Chuck E. Cheese one of my friends was killed and Nathan Dunlap was one of my friends. It was very confusing. And I always used to wonder if he would have killed me too, had I been there. Colorado has had more than a lot of other states, unfortunately. I know. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. Well, thank you guys both for joining us. You know, in the past few months, all the things that have led up, to all the protesting and the awareness. Hopefully, Americans are recognizing. Things have got to change. It's traumatizing. I mean, unless you have no soul, you could not have watched George Floyd or any of them or hear Elijah McClain's words. I mean, it, how can you not be affected, no matter what freaking color you are? So Megan, you had some things that you wanted to really hit on. The reason why um, I wanted to get together today, aside from you guys offering a platform, which again, thank you so much. When you and Mandy asked me to be on and talk about Black Lives Matter, I knew that I was comfortable doing it. However, I wanted Sherry, a Black woman, to be a part of the conversation because that is what the real work is here. And I've experienced a group of all white women who are talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. And I also have different people in my life who are very involved and affected by this movement. And I've kind of seen how we're all trying to group together and push forward. But there's some things on the white allyship side that I know a lot of white allies are confused about. A lot of different resources going around the internet about, you know, how to be the perfect white ally. You know, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. And what I'm noticing is that a lot of this movement, what I'm seeing from white people, is that there's these different books and terms and things we want to educate ourselves on. And that's great. There's different terms that we're learning how to describe different things. White fragility is a big one. I think that when I went to that white woman group, what surprised me was that I said, you know, we really need to have a person of color here or a black person here to talk about what we're talking about right now, because that is the most important perspective. And those are the voices that we need to amplify. And, you know, their response was kind of, that's not what this group is for. Um, we need room for white tears. 
which is also a term, but um, we need room to not be afraid to say what we have to say without triggering anyone. And in a way, I understood that because these women were more comfortable just sharing how they felt and, and not being so afraid to mess up. But at the same token, if we don't come together and have this conversation jointly, then we're not going to be able to move forward because we have two different ideas of what people want and what they think will work. They were having a whole group of white women trying to figure it out themselves. I'm just confused. <laughs> I was too surprised as to why they would do that. And at the same time, I also learned some things as a white woman myself because they called me out. Um, one of the things that they did tell me is that, you know, when you're talking about white people, no matter what it is that you're saying or referring to, you're including yourself, right? Even if you think that you do better or know better. So I could understand how there's a space a little bit just, just to be able to say things. It's really <laughs> important to have someone here that has experience in being I understand, and I think it's good intention. I'm not taking that away from it. I think about the white woman group as a space for us to share things. How do you feel about this as a white woman? What is your experience? We tend to do that, right? We tend to want to dominate the conversation because we're often heard, which mm -hmm. is why sharing needs to be in this space. And we need to listen and be able to hear as much from her as we can. So I want to ask okay. Sherry, what do you think about groups that are only white people working on anti-racism? What do you think are the benefits? What do you think is being held back? The group that you're describing, we see it a lot. And I think that it's a baby stage of entering into being ready to have conversations outside of what, what impacts you, right? I think that we start there, like even from a trauma perspective, when I came out of the shooting, I remember, you know, everything was, it was all about me. Like I went inward, right? And it, everything was about me. Everything was focused on me because I was in this place of pain and I was trying to get out of it. And it wasn't until I got to a healthier place that I could really hear from others, even if they were going to be helpful to me. And I think what we're experiencing or witnessing a lot right now is, is that. I think that people are starting to wake up and, and actually recognize that there is privilege and what privilege actually means, right? It doesn't mean that you don't have a hard life, right? It doesn't mean that bad the things don't happen to you, but really understanding that because that's what a lot of people hear when they hear privilege. I don't have a problem with those spaces. I just think that you have to be very honest about what it is that you're going to get from that and what, it, what your focus is. There are times when I just want to be around a group of Black people so I can talk about what we deal with, right, on a regular basis. And sometimes that can be difficult here in, in Colorado. You know, I had a group of friends a couple of years ago that we just kind of randomly met each other out. It's about six of us, and we started hanging out and having brunches, and we call ourselves the Black Delegation. And it was really just a place for us to talk about some of our experiences here as Black people in Colorado. And, you know, I get that. I just think you have to be very honest about what it is, why you're doing that, and what it is you're going to get from it. And so you're not going to get education necessarily from a Black person. or You are in an all-white space. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Like, where's the education coming from? They don't have somebody that actually can share experiences. Right, because they're looking at it from the perspective of a very educational and logical way of this, right? Our brains want some way to fix issues. And so then we create terms and different processes. But what I think you're trying to say, Shanna, and what I also feel is true is that this is not so much as head work as it is heart work and conversation work. We're trying to come together. We're trying to unify. And so that takes more than just abstract ideas. We want them to be together, united, anti-racist. Then maybe we do do these baby groups. We call them warm-ups, right? I warm up in my little white woman group. And then, Sherry, you have your black delegate group. And that's how we warm up. But then we need to practice together. That is where the most work is going to come from, like we're doing right now. And so, Sherry, you said it was great to be able to share your emotions in your group. And I saw that those women really did have good intentions. But one of the first tips on this infographic is that one of the things that is not okay as a white ally is outrage. And it says, outrage is a clear manifestation of your privilege. 
what they're saying by this is an outrage from a white woman is showing your privilege and also that it's not a problem for you until now. And so me, someone who is vocal um, about how I'm feeling about this, I also don't want to center it on myself. So I was just wondering, Sherry, how do you feel about people saying that a white ally cannot be outraged? I think the terminology can be tricky. I, I don't think there's an issue with being outraged. Like, right, like if you see an injustice um, and it really speaks to you, you get angry, right? There's, that's a natural human reaction. And I really do like the post that you shared that's talking about this. I was looking at the wording of it and then the instead try processing your outrage privately. So not necessarily saying you can't be outraged at what's happening, but your public show of outrage can really sometimes be a manifestation of your privilege, right? And, and I, I heard that a lot over the last couple of months was like, okay, Black people have been dealing with this for hundreds of years. And, then, and now it feels like all of a sudden, a lot of people are waking up to it and they're upset and they're angry. And we're like, well, where have y'all been all this time? And so I think that's what they're trying to get away from when they say outrage. Like, it's, it's fine to be outraged. It, it's natural if you are an empathetic person and you see injustice, right? But processing that outrage privately, um, I think is important. And because again, if you're doing it so much publicly, especially as a, a white person, you're centering yourself. And I kind of wanted to speak to that because white people are the default. In our culture, white people are the default. And that's in every aspect of our culture, in business, in learning, in textbooks. Everybody that we're learning about in history, right? When we're learning about inventors, mm -hmm. we only really learn about a couple of, of black inventors or inventors of color during Black History Month or something else, but everything else is defaulted, right, to, to white. And so I think that's what we're trying to get away from is that centering around it being, okay, now white people are upset, so something's going to get done. I'll leave that, that right there. Sure. And so I think part of me, when I just read that, I was like, what? I can't have anger about this, you know what I mean? But it, it's clear to me now what you're saying. So maybe if I were to be saying on Facebook or something like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe you guys are really doing this to people. This is really hurting everybody. Kind of step back from that, right? Absolutely. That's exactly a, a great example. The other side of that outrage was learn about slave trade, learn about colonialism. Um, eugenics, like, and not the way that we've learned about them in school, you know, and I put learn in air quotes because I'm using that term very loosely, because the atrocities of slavery, I didn't know the half of it until I got to undergrad, and I minored in American African Studies, which is, which was a program at um, the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, which is where I went to undergrad, and I started reading slave narratives, so narratives that were written by the handful of slaves that were able to read, that taught themselves to read, um, and really learning about what actually happened. And just really the education of talking about the different types of slavery, like there's different types of slavery and the chattel slavery that we had here in the United States is, is not the same type of slavery that you know, has been practiced in other parts of the world. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's so much worse in a lot of ways um, because you have a, a, a race of people that were literally treated like animals. You know, we were bred we were fed like animals, we were housed like animals, um, we were treated like animals. And you still see that thread. There was a lot of dehumanization that went into that. And you see that now. A conversation that I was having just this week with someone, because they were like, I don't understand how people could watch George Floyd or watch what happened to Elijah and, and not have a feeling about that. And what I said was, there are a lot of people that don't see us as human or don't see us as human as they are. We're less human. Right. And I mean, that was in our Constitution. We talk about the Constitution of the United States so much and we forget that I was three fourths of a human being per the Constitution of this country. And so when you think about that, even from a mental perspective, logically thinking or what that does to dehumanize a whole group of people, I encourage people to take that implicit bias test that Harvard has out or find one to really dig into because there's a lot of ways that you look at, you know, people and you subconsciously already have a judgment made that you don't, you don't necessarily know, like it's not conscious, right? I grew up in North Carolina. I'm 46. So I'm very transparent about my age and everything. Um, but I, you know, I was born in the seventies. I was basically a child of the eighties. And one of the things that I noticed, and I've lived in several different parts of the United States that specifically in the South, the way I was socialized was I didn't expect white people to actually see me. And in fact, part of my socialization from my family perspective was that 
you want to draw as least amount of attention to yourself from white people as you can, because that keeps you safe, that keeps you out of trouble. And what I noticed is that white people kind of looked through me in general, um, because you know what happens is I say things about white people and then somebody gets triggered and it, it centers on them and they're like, well, all white people aren't like that. And so th what that does is it takes away from you know what we're trying to talk about and it centers around whiteness again. An example is I have a, a friend who was living here in Colorado. She's an African-American woman, grew up in California, had never lived in the southern part of the United States. And, and please don't take this as the South is so much more racist than the rest of the country because it's not. It manifests differently and there's a different history and connection there. Her and her husband decided to leave Colorado, move to North Carolina, which is where he's from. I actually went to college with him. And I was trying to describe to her what she was going to experience as someone, as a Black person who had never lived in the South. And I said to her, I said, it's going to be way, way different than it is here in Colorado. It's going to be different even than it was in L.A. She got to North Carolina and she called me and she said, Sherry, white people look through me here. I have never experienced this before, but they do not see me. A lot of times white people don't hear these things because we don't necessarily talk about them. But if I'm in a Walmart or a Target or out in public, you know, there's been multiple times where white people don't see me. Like I'll be on the same aisle as them. I'll be picking out a product and they will reach right over me. And I really think that there's this whole subconscious of I don't see them because they're not me and they don't look like me. Final example on that is when I was working at Navy, one of the things I noticed a lot was when I would be walking through the hallways of Navy and I would pass specifically a lot of white males, I did not exist to them at all. They would step on me, they would walk over me, they would bump me because they didn't see me. Like literally it was almost like I was invisible. I think that is, I'll say part of a symptom of the dehumanization, of the marginalization, and of the humanity that we've been robbed of as a people. And so when you put it in perspective, you can see how somebody would be able to look at a video of a black man being murdered and it not be necessarily a big deal or they can push that away. That makes that, mm -hmm. I'm so sorry, Sherry, I'm so sorry. But just from where I grew up, I grew up in Aurora, Colorado. I've known all different kinds of people my whole life. I have had Black friends my entire life. I appreciate Black culture. It was a big influence on my school. And so it's just, I have never been around only white people. And these women, I realized in this group, some of them truly never had been. Truly. Wow. And so how can you really have heartfelt connection to a group of people that you've never even yeah you don't know and yeah and it's still shocking right because we're all human but I just had to realize that some of not have black people in their circle whatsoever again but just back to the dehumanization because I think it's it can be even easier for us to look at we can see people in other countries right we can look at mm -hmm. um, you know war-torn countries or countries where we see travesties and have empathy for them but mm -hmm. then still like look at people who are right next to us and not have that same empathy. It's not even so much that you have to be around somebody that doesn't look like you in order to them, but you do have to see them as human and you do have to see them as equal. And that's going to be on a spiritual, on a subconscious level. And I think that's something that we really grapple with. I think if, and this is across the board in the United States, if we really dig deep, do we really see us as all human? And I think that um, that comes up a lot, even in the way that we're reading. Megan's post, I actually, you know, responded to, and I usually don't, was when you were really upset about what happened at Elijah's visual in Aurora with the Aurora Police Department. And I think one of the things I said to you is that I don't argue with people about good police versus bad police because it's a system issue. Like the whole policing system, it's rotten from its foundation, and it literally did come from slave patrols, especially on the East Coast and in the South. You know, the slave patrols once slavery was over, those became our police. And that you can't start with the foundation and you can't have a system built around that. And you can go in with all the great intentions that you want to, but how can you be a good officer inside of such a toxic system? And, um, and so I think we have to, a lot of times we define racism, especially in our individualistic society, right? Americans are very pro-individual. And we look at a lot of things through the lens of the individual. We were founded on that um, in a lot of ways. 
So we don't necessarily look at the collective. So we define racism a lot of times by, you know, I don't hate anybody. I don't have hate in my heart against somebody that doesn't look like me. That's individual. The issue is system, even more so than that, right? Because uh, Nina Simone has a song, one of my favorite songs by her is Mississippi Goddamn. And in that song, uh, you know, she's really handing it to racists in, in Mississippi. One of the things she says is, you don't have to live next to me, but give me my equality. So at the end of the day, um, when we're looking at racism as a system, instead of this whole individual, I need to be able to connect with somebody. And we're able to look at the, at the macro of that and see, okay, even if I can't necessarily relate on a personal level to this group of people, is, what, is what's happening to them just, and is it, is it fair? And is it equal to the treatment that I receive? I watched that movie 13 last night for the first time, and I was very naive to a lot of what I learned. It really opened my eyes up a lot, especially to the dehumanizing, the injustices, the history. And today I found myself in a place of almost feeling mad at myself that I've been so naive and so uneducated. And, you know, I know they talk about that too, that white guilt. I'm not going to stick in that guilt because this is not about me. I see a lot of white people right now trying to implement themselves into this and it's not about us. If you truly want to be empathetic, you have to take yourself out of the equation. You have to see it through their eyes. I know Megan's an empath, 100%. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I am. Yeah, Mandy is. Sherry, do you consider yourself an empath? Are you? In, yeah, just like you said with, you know, having outrage. Some of us can't help. But I think that, and I like the tie-in between the outrage and the guilt, because I, you know, they're connected. And, um, and there's some guilt. And I think whenever we feel guilty as humans, we, get, we can become defensive. Mm-hmm. you know, in that. And it's okay to feel guilt, but not stay there. And so I think the yes. important, it was interesting because I think the month of May, I was contacted by um, lots of random white people from my past. <laughs> who, you know, oh. <laughs> haven't heard from you forever, but yeah. Kindergarten. No. And, and hence, this Whoa. is, I'm serious. I, um, I got messages I went to private Christian school and, and Megan, you may have seen the post that I made about an experience I had as a four-year-old um, where nice. I, was, I was at private Christian school and was four-year-old kindergarten. And um, it was one of my first memories of racism inside the school as a four-year-old trying to process that, like not knowing, you know, terminology or all of that. But this, this little boy in my class was kind of picking on me and I was the only black child in the class. And he was telling me that my eyes were black because all black people had black eyes. And I'm four, and so was he. But this was really upsetting to me because as a four-year-old little girl, I didn't know a lot of things, but I did know that my eyes were brown because that was one thing that people would always comment on me from the time I can remember till now. People would talk about my eyes. My eyes were brown. They're, you know, they're kind of striking and they stand out as brown eyes. And so I was having an argument with this little boy and I was like, no, my eyes are brown. I know that they are. Like everybody says it and I see it. And he's like, no, they're black because all black people have black eyes. And this is somehow he got this message, right? As a, as a four-year-old. Four-year-old. The teacher overheard it and she came over and she reprimanded me and she punished me. And I had to go stand in the corner during snack time, during prayer. First off, it was very confusing because I didn't understand why I was being punished for speaking what was true and to me what was obvious. She automatically sided with who in my post I named young Chad. She automatically sided with him and I was literally punished because I pushed back on him. Not because what I said was false, but because I dared to argue with this little white boy. And that was as a four-year-old. And so And from that, I actually had two people who were in that classroom with me contact me, sending messages and say, I remember Ms. Stone's class. We were together in that class. And I am so sorry that that happened. I didn't realize how much you went through. I remember you being the only black girl in the class or the only black child, but I didn't know, you know, how impactful that was to you. My daughter, she's only eight. Her best friend that they've been best friends since they were born, but they're like sisters and she's African-American. 
how do you feel we should approach children? Like, what do you think? I mean, do I want to go there with her at a certain age about slavery? I think that it starts at home. Had little Chad known we're all human beings, we all have souls, we all have the same color blood, we may have different color skins, but we have different color hair, you know, we all have different color eyes, not every black person has black eyes. Do you have an opinion on that? I definitely have an opinion. I think that, you know, as, as it comes up, I don't think we necessarily, like there's some, you know, education. As things come up, point them out, talk about them, don't shy away from them, and they can't necessarily process it all or articulate it, but they get it. And I actually... There's a really good example of being an ally from a kid's perspective. Um, I was at a different private school. I went to two different private schools, both of them all white, pretty, you know, middle income to wealthy white people in the South who basically were sending their kids to Christian schools so they didn't have to go to public school with black children. I mean, that was the intent for a lot of them. Historically, and a lot of like the Christian schools that popped up, popped up after integration. And it was to shield white children from having to go to school with black children. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, in the name of Jesus. I was born in High Point, North Carolina, home of NASCAR, and literally went to school with NASCAR kids. That particular school, I started there in first grade. And my first few weeks in that school, I was being bullied on the playground by a much older white boy. Like I was, you know, first grade, so six, seven. And this boy was probably 12. I was not only the only black girl in my class, but one of the only black people in the entire school. My siblings were the other two, mainly, that I can remember. This 12-year-old was really bullying me. Well, these two little boys in my class, same age, two little white boys, Aaron and Brian, I'll never forget their names. They noticed what was happening. They saw it happening on a regular basis, and they came up. I don't know. They had a conversation with each other, and they approached me one day, and they said, look, we see him. He bothers you. He's mean to you, and so we're going to be your bodyguards from now on. These two little six, seven-year-olds saw something happening and they decided to take action. And I really wanted to share that example because I think it's, it's a very pure example just from a human level of these children, but also from a standpoint of how do you be a good ally? And that was, re- they did it, right? They saw something and they took action in the, in the only way that they knew how. Like, I don't know how they knew about bodyguards and <laughs> what that was, but they decided that I needed protection and that nobody else was doing it. And so they were going to step in and do it. Kids can handle a lot more, you know, than sometimes we think that they can, and we try to shield them, but they see what's going on in the world. So that's actually another question. They're not born with hate, but I will have to say, in my experience through my journey, there are DNA traits that I have, that I have connected, not only to the good part of uh, my ancestry, but I saw a lot of things that were negative in my DNA trait that where I was like, holy shit, no wonder I'm like that. Not saying that you can't decide to recognize that and decide you're not going to be like that anymore. Cause I think that's the point. But how do you feel about that? What do you guys think? I believe that there are all kinds of things that are passed down in our, through our DNA and genealogy. There's trauma. You know, I think that there's definitely a collective trauma that we have passed down in our DNA and, and they've actually scientifically been able to prove. I think that, you know, trauma is passed down, right? And so absolutely, I agree that there are some things, but it, it's, it's about being able to acknowledge them, recognize, acknowledge, and then what am I going to do now? You know, am I going to, I mean, because you can see themes in families, right? You can see behaviors in families all the time that are similar, and that's genetics. Also just socialization in families. So it can be there, but if we can acknowledge it, recognize it, and then move forward and say, okay, I'm going to make the change. A lot of things I think we deal with in families, my own included, persist because we ignore it and we pretend like it's not there or we don't address it. I agree. I would like to um, back up for a second. Shanna, when you were asking about talking with kids, I, I will say that one thing that I've been really sitting on today also is I feel like um, the way history is taught really needs to be changed within schools and I think that they need to quit glorifying we need to get real raw and honest in our history books and that that is a huge shift that needs to happen teacher taught me that slavery in the south was slaves in the south had it better enslaved people in the south had it better than free blacks in the north because the free blacks in the North were poverty stricken and at least enslaved people in the South knew where their next meal was coming from. That, is, that was literally taught to me 
in the fifth grade. I remember going home and telling my mom this. And so you're right. Like we have to reframe the way that we, we have to change the way that, that history is taught. Mandy and I are both older. My Mandy, 44, I think. I think I'm only 44. <laughs> but guess what? <laughs> I know it's getting bad already. Yeah, I look beautiful. Yeah, I look great. <laughs> we moved from Louisiana to Colorado in second grade. I was the very first person to go to a public school and with black people. Yeah. So there you go. Isn't that crazy? And thank God they did. They thank God be around any yeah. type of person that is not like you because that is the biggest blessing that I could say that we can find in our lives, honestly, because you get to share yeah. love with, with so many more people. We learn that love. And when it comes to school and we're talking about history again, you guys, I don't know if you remember learning about slavery like the very first day you saw it in a textbook but i remember that image that they had in there just so clear and i was oh my god i was shocked of course and i was just like looking around like oh my god this those were my friend's family like what like why would that even happen but what i wish would have happened is for the teachers to be like, okay, now your next assignment is to go talk about this with your parents. Mm. Because that would be very powerful. Because really, when we learned about it, it was like a week long, and then it was swept under the rug, right? And then that's the most you hear about it in school. But if we were yeah. to actually go and talk to our parents, hey, there's going to be some parents that might not have some good things to say, but I think they have parents so involved nowadays, don't they? Well, yes. especially right now, <laughs> because no one's yeah. in school. I see a lot of white people saying things like, oh, the, the slavery was hundreds of years ago, and oh, you know what, that's just uh, human nature, and it pisses me off. H how does that make you feel, and what would you say about that? It's hard to articulate how it makes me feel, because I think it's, it's enraging, but it's also all I've known. The way that we teach in schools is that slavery was this long time ago, and that we go from slavery to the civil rights to Martin Luther King and then presto change, there's no racism in America anymore and everybody has their rights. And I remember um, having this conversation with, really with a, a, a friend here in Colorado, older, older white woman, somebody who doesn't see color, everybody's the same and I've never treated anybody poorly. I started to describe some of the experiences that I had in school with being told I couldn't go to a slumber party because they don't allow niggers in their house. Like literally that was said to me as a nine-year-old. I just began to talk about these experiences and, and this woman completely shut down. She started crying. She was like, this makes me feel bad. I don't wanna talk about it anymore. And I think mm -hmm. that that speaks to what you were saying. And that's what, a lot of times that's what happens when black people try to share the experiences that we have had. And, and as many experiences as, as you may have heard of racism or racist incidents from black people, it's not even a half of it. It's probably not even a drop in the bucket because the microaggressions and just the way of life daily, there's all kinds of things. And I've often thought, you know, if, if a white person could, had to be black for just one day, the eyes like would be so open because a lot of the injustices that we've learned, I was being followed around by a photojournalist about uh, that I was in a documentary about surviving a shooting. We went, I'm looking at Safeway, I, I live right across. She wanted to take some B-roll, um, footage of me just in a grocery store shopping, because that used to be a huge trigger for me. It was hard for me to go grocery shopping after the shooting. So we're mm -hmm. in there and I get some items and we get to the self-checkout and my receipt won't print. And, um, and I made a big deal about, I have to have my receipt. I need to go get my receipt. And when we got outside and she's, she's a white woman, grew up here in Colorado. And um, she was like, you know, most people would have just left. Like you paid for it, it was clear, right? Like you were there, everybody saw it. Why did you feel the need to have a receipt? And I was like, cause I'm a black person. I can't walk out of this store with items mm -hmm. and not proof of paying for them. And that's something that was ingrained in me from a, a, little, a little child. I always had to have evidence that I did what I was supposed to do. And so it's those little things that if you're a white person in America and you don't think about that cause you don't have to. And, you have, and again, you get the benefit of the doubt most of the time. Right. If something happens, you get the benefit of the doubt. The rule of law is usually on your side. Even if police show up, you're given the benefit of the doubt. In 2016, I was in a Harris Teeter, which is a grocery store chain in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was in a very well-to-do part of, of Charlotte and I ran in there and my yoga attire had just left therapy to pick up honey and lemon. 
And when I went into that store, they immediately put in a call for security. Two managers began following me around the store. And the only reason I went through with my purchase was because I knew if I walked out of that store without anything, that I would probably be stopped and detained for stealing. So I go up to the front to pay for my lemon and my honey, and they have gone into their protocol for people who are trying to steal in the store. All the cashiers were standing in the middle of the aisle so that I couldn't walk straight through and, and leave the store without paying. And once I paid for my purchase and I got outside, there was a sheriff's car waiting. This was in 2016. And this is behavior that happens all the time. So yes, I'm very hypervigilant about having my receipt when I pay for things. But it's little things like that you don't think about unless you're dealing with that on, on a daily basis. But, you know, I was talking to my cousin who has two boys that are mixed. We were talking about white privilege and she gave me an example and it was very humbling. She said, Mandy, when your son was going off to college, did you ever have to consider where he was going based on his color and where he would be accepted the most? And I was like, oh my God, no. And she goes, well, I did. This is my family. And I said, holy shit, like I never would have stopped to think about that. I didn't understand until probably in the last few years how it's not okay to be colorblind. I think that a lot of people get confused. And also it's along the same lines with All Lives Matters. If you could just maybe just lay it out for her listening, you don't get that. I had this conversation with a fellow survivor who was visiting Colorado last year, who lives in Southern California. And it came from a place of sincerity, but she was like, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't see color and there's not really a lot of racism where I live and I, I raised my kids. And I was like, okay, I have been to Orange County, California, and I guarantee you that there is lots of racism there. And I said, and I understand what your intent is with you don't see color. I said, but that statement is super problematic because when you don't see color, you don't see me. And again, it goes back to this, this culture that we have of white is the default, right? And so anything other forces you outside of that and you have to acknowledge it. When we see these studies about the happiest countries, what we uh, uh, notice a lot of times are they're very homogenous countries, right? Um, Norway is one of the top lists of, of, you know, happy countries. People are very happy there. They don't have a lot of diversity there either, right? They don't have to grapple with people who don't look like them a lot or who don't, there's not the differences. And I have really good friends who live there who were living here and the wife was Norwegian and they just chose to go there and raise their kids because it was a much better environment than here. And I get it. But I, what I would say is a combination of just diversity forces you to deal with other things outside of yourself. And that can be hard, but also just the history of our country makes it hard. It makes it not feel good. And so it's human nature to want to protect yourself from that. Right. And it's also human nature to see yourself in the best light when it comes to that. You can say, you know, I don't see color. I, you know, I'm a good person. And that may be true, but by not seeing color, then you don't see what's going on around you and you're not very present. I had two points I wanted to really make on this podcast about being a good ally. And one of them was really, there's no like 12 step program, right? Necessarily to being a good ally. And I think a lot of times um, Megan, she spoke to it a little bit about the whole, I want to educate, you know, people want to get in groups and educate themselves and read books and learn how to be an ally. And, and that's part of it. But really a big part of it is being a, a good human. Just be present and recognize what's going on around you, right? Like I have been in positions where I've, I've had to step up or make the decision on whether I was going to step up and be an, be an ally to somebody else that was in a different marginalization or a different way. Person that's LGBTQIA, I specifically have an incident last year where they were being denied service in a, in a restaurant and I spoke up about it and they were being treated very poorly. But I had to pay attention. I had to see that, right? And just because, mm -hmm. you know, I don't identify, but I saw my friend being discriminated against and I said something about it. And I think, you know, that's what being a good ally is. And it doesn't look the same for everybody. You know, I have friends who are like, I'm not, I can't deal with the protests. And I can't, like I personally, mm -hmm. I have PTSD and I know in a situation where it gets violent and people are being shot at, even if, with rubber bullets, I'm not going to do well there. I'm going to have a panic attack and they're going to end up taking care of me. It's going to distract from the situation. That's not where I'm, I'm, I'm good, right? And so it, it doesn't have to look like the same thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, you're on Facebook typing away and posting away. It, it can be that. But it also, when you see something, say something. Like Aaron and Brian, who decided to become my bodyguards at, you know, at six or seven because they saw me being bullied. When I was at Navy supporting this program, I had a, a very problematic program manager 
who was racist. My first week at that job, I was the only black person or person of color in that program, in that office working. And this manager in our, my very first meeting used the term niggardly. Now, I'm an English major and I know what that means. It means frugal, I get it. We don't use it in American vernacular because it's too close to the other word. And everybody knows that. He did this purposefully. He did it yeah. to put me in my place and to let me know what he thought about me. Now, I heard it. I didn't react to it. I knew what was happening. You know, it's not my first show, rodeo. But a coworker, and I didn't know any of them at the time, reported it. Mm. A coworker didn't talk to me about it, didn't say anything to me about it, but they went and they reported it to a supervisor. Now, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it was reported, that is an ally move, right? That is, yeah. and that is an ally move, not just from a place of individual, this person is being mistreated in this covert way, but also mm -hmm. a system issue because yeah. he's allowed as a, a person in leadership to say these things. Now, this manager went on to call me a gorilla. Oh, he shit. Me gorilla. Yeah, it was during lunch at an off-site meeting with people outside of our program I had just returned from my trip in China and I was showing people pictures on my iPad and he walked by and saw a picture of me and said, Ooh, it looks like a gorilla. And it, you know, jokingly, he was reported by a, a coworker. I didn't report it. And the last really racist thing that I remember him doing was announcing to the office that I knew how to steal because I was from the hood. This is 2012, 2013. This was not a long time ago, right? This man is a government federal employee, very highly paid, making six figures. And he's able to say these type of things um, because he's been able to say these type of things. And that's the kind of atmosphere that we were in. But every time he did one of those things, he was reported by one of my coworkers, not by me. And unfortunately, that carried more weight than it would have if I reported it, right? Because a lot of times, when Black people point out, especially even blatant racism, we're accused of playing the race card, or there are a lot of, well, let's, let's look at both sides, or what was the context? People need to know, oh, yeah. what was, what was um, the He called you a gorilla. And I'm like, what, made that okay? Like, yeah, right. right? You know? Yeah, what kind well, of and As a woman, it's already hard enough to be in the Navy and in that position, and then you add that on. Yeah. And so I just wanted to point out that these coworkers, they were allies, right? They went okay. on my behalf and they reported him. And two times I didn't even know that they did it until he came to me to address it because it had been reported. I appreciate like these real life experiences that you're sharing of people being allies because I don't think pe some people seriously don't even know what that means or how to even go about it. So that's important. And I think it is important. And that's why I wanted to point out that it doesn't have to look, you know, a certain way. My boyfriend happens to be white. He will get into Facebook battles. <laughs> He'll get in Facebook battles with some relatives very recently. And he just gets so heated. And I've talked to him and I've been like, why do you spend so much energy? All he was trying to do was get him to say Black Lives Matter. You know, he was like, well, can you just, and they won't say it. Like they refuse to say it. They always fall back on the politics of it. It was like Sherry, I know that you see the discussions that are happening in the back and forth and you see me getting stressed out. He said, but what I don't always share with you is that even if the person that I'm talking to, I don't convince them, there are two people that jump up in my direct messages. They may not say it publicly, but they say, thank you because you helped me see things in a different way. And so again, being an ally can look like a lot of different things. And that's what he's explained to me. He was like, if I can help anybody that's paying attention to this exchange, see things from a different perspective, then I feel like I've done something, you know, to move it forward. And that's one of the many ways that he can act as an ally. Yeah. I'm not shocked that you have a partner who's white, but as you were telling the stories from the four-year-old until your boss, I was actually going to ask you that. Had you formed your own prejudice or unconscious issue with the white male? So that's interesting that even if you had, you definitely overcame that, decided not to let that energy stay with you. I also live in Colorado, so I don't have a whole lot of options. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people, it's so funny because people will say, your boyfriend's white. I'm like, I live in Denver. I mean, so anyway, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I've, I've had a lot of trauma um, in my life. I was sexually assaulted 
in high school as a 17 year old um, going into my senior year by a friend who was a black man. The mass shooter in my situation was a black man, which is normally that's not what a mass shooter looks right. like in the country, right? No. And I point that out just to say, I've received trauma from it. Right. It's not always about oh, race. Not. There's bad people in everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. There has been a time where I, like, I will not date white people. I'm just not doing it. I'm not going there. I have been in that place in my life. There's an author, Bell Hooks. She's a black, I'm an author, and I was an English major. Mm -hmm. I remember I went to see her. She, she was doing a book signing in Maryland when I was living in D.C. She used to be very vocal about being pro-black and you know, being careful about your relationships with white people and was really against interracial relationships for the early part of her career. And she changed her stance on it. And during this book signing, somebody asked her about it and they were like, you know, how did you, you know, change your stance? And she said, I got to a place where I said, I'm not going to turn down love in whatever form it comes to me. And that statement really, really stuck with me and really helped me to pay more attention to what is love just in general. You know, what does that energy look like? What does that energy feel like? Am I going to deny that because I don't like the package that it came in? When you're talking about allyship and just standing up, even in the smallest ways, I think something that is really hard right now for white allies is doing that with family. It, it is hard. You know, those family relationships are hard, but that's really where the work is. Mm -hmm. That's where the, you know, a lot of that hard work is there because you're connected to these people and you've mm -hmm. got to, you know, and there's a, you can either, you can grapple with it or, you know, however you choose to deal with it. The older generation, they're set in their ways and I can't change anybody. So what I did is I told my generation, but you know who wanted to hear about it and wanted to know was the younger generation. They embraced it. They wanted the information. They were like little sponges. Tell me more. I can't believe this. I just can't change the past, but maybe for the future. Meg been extremely active in all of the protests. So I went to the first one that was actually here in Denver. It was daylight. We were about 30 minutes into our protesting, which was, you know, us on the sidewalk with our signs, not saying, please listen to us, but yelling justice now, you know, that's, that was our message. I know that it could have been better planned by the city. They knew we were going to be there. They could have closed off some roads, right? But instead of doing that, police were knocking people down, pushing these young, skinny girls down to the ground, you know, and about 10 minutes later, they were firing rubber bullets at us. And that's when things really got escalated. That's when people started to go and hit cars and just get out of control because here was these police officers using weapons against us when we had just started protesting. Really, it was pure daylight. So that one, when I saw the images of the cops pulling people down, trying to run over people, being on the back of their little military truck with guns pointed at us for rubber bullets, I just, I couldn't believe my eyes. I was like, this is crazy. And it shook me up. But at the same time, when we were together yelling for Black Lives Matter, there was cars coming by honking in support. I was around people who were on a mission to spread good in this world. And, and I knew even though the police were doing those things, that this was what was right. This is what we needed to do. So the next day, the next protest, I went with my little sister and I said, okay, you know, I'm going to leave if anything gets crazy, but I want to have an overall peaceful experience. That was my goal, that this day was going to be peaceful. My little sister is there. And what happened that day was we actually got to the protest right in time before they started. We all laid in our stomach in the grass with our hands behind our back. And we started, you know, saying, chanting, I can't breathe. And when you were on the ground on your stomach, you know, you're chanting, I can't breathe. You really, you know, you couldn't breathe. And you're looking at the ground with your hands behind your back. And what came to my head was, wow, what if these were the last moments of my life? Laying on the ground with my hands behind my back, looking at the ground. And I look over at my little sister who's right next to me. And I'm looking at her face and I'm like, what if that was her last time alive? And nobody was there. And all she saw was the ground with her hands behind her back. And that was so impactful to me 
we went on that day to March. I felt just so much energy again of people feeling each other, feeling the pain of each other and feeling the fact that we need to move forward and make the world better for each other. It was a huge group of people and it was almost like I was standing there at one point like, yes, I knew I wasn't the only one who believes that we should be united, who believes that there's injustices going on right in front of our eyes. I had two different experiences, but I continued to go and I will continue to go because although our government says that protesting is part of our rights, you know, peacefully protesting and all of that, I too saw the aggravation of a peaceful protest get turned around um, just by sheer force of the police, overuse of the weapons that they have been using. Those were the two that stood out to me. Also crazy to see people going around and spray painting stuff. People who really weren't a part of the marches, who were the ones to really be the agitators. I am so grateful to have had this conversation today. I hope that this doesn't just stop. I hope that it keeps getting stronger and stronger. Megan, you've been an inspiration because you come from such a place of love and compassion. I wanted to read two things that I just feel like inspired me. Empathy is seeing with the eyes of another, listening with the ears of another, and feeling with the heart of another. And then another one that I really liked is opinion is really the lowest form of human knowledge. It requires no accountability, no understanding. The highest form of knowledge is empathy, for it requires us to suspend our egos and live in another's world. It requires profound purpose, larger than the self kind of understanding. And now it's time for Break That Shit Down. You're thanking me, Mandy, but I want to thank you and Shanna both because I'm grateful that you guys were open to listening and open to being vulnerable because that's so important. And I would say that's a very important part of being an ally is being vulnerable, being able to share your mistakes and also being ready to make mistakes and be humbled when those mistakes are pointed out to you. And just trying to do better if you are getting feedback that you're making mistakes. And then I would also say, be daring and have conversations like this with anyone and everyone. Like you were saying, Mandy, instead of highlighting your own opinion, listen. Women like Sherry, women that are really feeling this struggle, men as well. Also, don't think too much into this and how to be perfect at it because I was clearly doing that. And I'm like trying to find like the best form of being an ally. But what I'm doing is showing up time and time again in the best way I can. And I'm realizing that's what you can do. That's all you can do. All right, Sherry, your turn to break that shit down, girl. <laughs> you, know, I'm a, you know, I'm a preacher's kid, but I, I'm, I won't, I won't do it. Let's hear it. <laughs> no, I, I just want to first of all say I appreciate uh, the platform and I appreciate your willingness to listen and to be vulnerable and to, you know, acknowledge, you know, what's, what's really happening and acknowledge your own um, stuff that you've, you've, you've had to work through and deal with because that's what's needed, that's what's necessary, that's really the hard work. And I guess as far as breaking it down, I, I just wanna reiterate uh, a couple of things. Racism in this country is, is multifaceted, right? And it permeates every aspect of our culture from business to being able to purchase a home, to being able to get a loan, to being able to get a car, to you know whatever it is that you do, to your interactions with, with law enforcement, to how you're perceived in the world. And I think that that gets lost a lot of time in being called the N-word or not being allowed in a place, right? Like, again, kind of going back to that Nina Simone quote in Mississippi Goddamn, you don't have to live next to me, but give me my equality. And so I want to press that as an ally, look at it from an individual perspective, but also look at the systems around you, the systems that you're involved in. And when you see something and you can say something, when you can take an action and you you're in an appropriate position because I don't ever want anyone to put their, their lives in danger. But, you know, there are a lot of ways to be an ally, you know, to people of color, to black and indigenous people here in the United States. And, and a lot of times it's systemic. A lot of times it is that coworker who, who sees this racist act happening and then they go and they, they press the issue and they don't just ignore it. You see an injustice happening in the world, speak up about it if you know, if you can. 
those are the things that, that I, I really want to, to drive home that being an ally can look like a lot, a lot of different things. Nobody may ever know anything that you do, right? Like, but it's not about that. And I think that dismantling of the ego, just in general, right, as human beings, is such a hard thing for us to do, but it's necessary, especially right now. And especially if you wanna really dig into this work, you have to, like Megan said, be willing to make mistakes, be willing to not be perfect at what you're doing. Um, I jumped on one of the scooters for the first time this past weekend. You know, I'm 46, I had no business, but um, <laughs> I, my boyfriend decided to go scooting. And the biggest hurdle for that was, I don't wanna look stupid. Like, I don't wanna make mistakes. If I fall, you know, what happens? What does that look like? And I was so wrapped up in myself and my ego that it was gonna keep me from this experience. And finally, I just jumped on the scooter and I said, fuck it. What's gonna happen is gonna happen, but I gotta get out there and do it if this is what I wanna do. And I would say that, you know, if you wanna be an ally, you kinda gotta have that idea that I may end up looking crazy sometimes, I may make a mistake, I may say the wrong thing sometime or do the wrong thing, but I have to be willing to, A, be open to being corrected about it, really evaluating myself, and then keeping moving, not letting it stop me. A lot of white people shut down because they're called out on something that needed to be called out. They didn't like the way it felt, you know, it wasn't kumbaya and touchy-feely anymore, and they become defensive, and they're like, well, if that's the way you're going to act, then I'm not going to help anymore. And that really goes to intent. So what is your real, what really is your intent? If you say you want to be an ally, and this shut you down, then what were you really trying to get out of this? And pay attention, be present, pay attention to what's going on in the world. But when you see it, don't ignore it, address it. And when you see things in yourself, address it. Educating yourself and reading books that you wouldn't normally read, listening to people you wouldn't normally mm -hmm. listen to. Dude, just be a good freaking human being. Continue moving forward. And, and Megan, I am impressed with the work that you've been doing. And really, not even so much that you're such an advocate because you, you have been, especially, you know, and I'm just seeing you on, on Facebook, really, and maybe Instagram, but also your willingness to admit being vulnerable, your willingness to learn, your willingness to acknowledge that you didn't know or acknowledge that you might have been wrong about something. That is so <laughs> powerful and it's, it's rare. And so I want to say that I appreciate that and I appreciate the platform and thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. Love to all you ladies. All right, girls. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you will come back next week. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate, like, and subscribe. Thank you. We rise to lift you up. Thanks for listening.